You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 25th of April 2021 on Monocle 24. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule, and a very, very warm welcome to today's program. With the terraces open and a buzz about town, my guests today, Céline Leger and Rob Cox, will go through some of the weekend's top stories. Rob Cox is here. Anything caught your eye this weekend so far, Rob? Well, there's a lot of things. Uh, looking forward to this week is going to be the 100 days of Joe Biden, the first. And it is actually quite striking when you see sort of what's happened in the last 100 days, quite quietly, relative to the first 100 days of Trump. So you've got We've frozen out the Saudis. He's angered the Turks, talking about the Armenian genocide. He's now changing capital gains taxes to move away from taxing, you know, rent seekers and and, and at least putting them on a level playing field with labor. Uh, You've got huge infrastructure spending. I mean, it's it's actually quite amazing. And and we'll start with every paper everywhere around the world seems to be focusing on that right now. Very good. Much more on that a bit later. Plus, uh, Zeit Magazine's Christoph Amen reviews his papers and monocles Gwen Robinson will have an update from the Thai capital. Also ahead, our Oscars desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, will be putting on his Sunday best as the global showpiece prepares for an evening like no other. Hi, Tyler. It's an exciting day for the movie industry. We'll discuss why the Academy Awards today will look and feel very different. Thanks very much for that, Faye. It's the 25th of April. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from a very, very sunny Zurich this morning. The city with a bit of a hangover, you could say, uh, as you're on the way. And you could see it was a very uh, large night. Uh, of course, the first Saturday that everything was open. Very, very busy uh, garbage people, I would say, around the town this morning. I'm also very happy to say uh, that I'm joined today by Rob Cox. Of course, we heard from you in the opener, Rob. Uh, you're, you're sort of fresh back from other parts, uh, but your sense of coming back to, uh, to the city uh, from the other side of the border. What's uh, what's the feeling been? Yeah, it feels like a bit of liberation, a bit of relaxation after months and months of, of things being closed and, and no opportunities for the sort of socializing that uh, that is so key to a city in an urban environment like this. Um, of course, not like I am. I don't have the hangover that you might have today. And I haven't been. I wasn't I was talking out about of the, the city, not me personally. <laughs> but anyway, but it's good to see things starting to sort of melt back into something like a normality, not just here, but around Europe. Absolutely. Uh, Céline Leger is here uh, as well. Uh, you're going to be manning a bit of an Oscars desk uh, for us uh, today as well with our Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Uh, but also you just returned as well. Uh, you saw a bit of the Atlantic uh, over on uh, the coast of, uh, of Portugal, Europe's west coast. Uh, but uh, bonjour, very nice to see you this morning. Hi, good morning, Tyler. Yeah, I'm just back in uh, exactly just like Rob say, just see the city with all the terrace open when I was back in Zurich yesterday. Under the sun, that was absolutely, absolutely joyful. So happy to be back in the city that way. And uh, the feeling in uh, in Portugal uh, as well, because uh, this is a country that we've seen uh, also, you know, quite low infection rates. Uh, but there's there's almost this this competition uh, starting now. But maybe how does life feel on the streets of Lisbon at the moment? 
I mean, to, yeah, it's uh, they, they started to reopen everything um, started uh, two weeks ago. I mean, the restaurants are even open inside, you know, they, they respect the rules, but uh, uh, there is still mask outside, which is make it uh, feeling very different than yeah, here. It's, it's a little that is a little bit strange. The mask outside rule, just same as in Italy as well, um, isn't yeah. it, Rob? Well, today is Liberation Day in Italy. It's a celebration of 76 years since they were liberated from the Nazis and the fascists. And it is also particularly coincides with tomorrow being liberation from months of lockdown. And so you'll start to see, I guess, a bit like what we have here, what you see in Portugal, at least outside dining, uh, people walking around, actually being not being you know told by the police they can't have an aperitivo on the street. Uh, still, still a long way from normal. Uh, inside dining. Wow, that's a concept that I don't think people are. <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. They're, they're not. Yeah, not not quite there. Maybe ready for that in in many places. Uh, just Rob, just maybe your view though. It's you know we we have of course Italy as you said it's sort of opening up. Uh, you know we we. There's a bit of a question mark around around France. I mean, of course, there is an opening. We don't know exactly what that schedule looks like. But nevertheless, we're talking about the sun being out. Doesn't matter if you're, you know, of course, if you're uh, sitting uh, in um, the tourism office and running over the tourism ministry in Lisbon or you're in Madrid or you're in Rome, is there this equalization? I mean, everyone has to get in the game in this summer season and, and pretty fast and probably pretty much on the same playing field. I guess Rob, you don't want to be on the side where people are saying, oh, no, I'm, I'm not going to that Mediterranean country. No, I mean, well, there has already been a bit of competition. I mean, you saw Italy basically slapped a five-day quarantine on anyone um, leaving the country and coming back uh, during the April uh, spring uh, Easter break, and that only expires at the end of this month. So there is a certain amount of, there is a certain amount of competition to it. But look, once once France, say, opens up to the U.S., I mean, or once we start to see the U.S., for instance, you know, we've got 70 million visitors or something like that every year that are, they ha- that have gone without in these places, I think I think everyone's just going to rush back into it. I'm, I'm already starting to think time to make a bunch of reservations now between, you know, between now and, the, and October, uh, because as soon as they open this thing up, the, it's going to be the floodgates are just going to come pouring through. Okay, and, small you know. game I want to play. So, okay, fine. Great that you You've been to Lisbon. You've been to Italy. But if you if you sort of think, uh, Solen, uh, and maybe if you can speak on behalf of the Republic, if you speak on behalf of the French, is you know obviously everyone you know for for the reasons that are quite obvious had to stay largely in their borders last year. Do you, are we going to see though this great flight elsewhere this year, or do you think people are still going to vote with their pocketbook and only go to the coast of Brittany, only south of France, or do you think that uh, your country, uh, your fellow countrymen will, uh, will go further afield? Very good question. And uh, by talking with different people in Paris recently, I can say that it's both. Uh, it's 50-50. Uh, people with uh, children and family, they want to, let's, let's say that this summer, they want to be kind of a precautionist and maybe stay in France, go south of France. But uh, people with no children or uh, that have the freedom to to fly more 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 quickly to Greece or they want to go to Spain Italy also it's on the it's on the list no I, I say it's 50 50 depend and some people are still afraid so uh, to take a long flight with uh, with a mask so this is a big point mm. taking a long flight with a mask and on the point of some people being afraid uh, there was something an interesting comment and, and certainly a commentary uh, around some numbers that we had out of the UK and this this was something that uh, the comment of course appeared in our Andrew Tuck uh, Saturday, uh, of 
course, peace. Andrew, you're there. Uh, good morning. I just wanted to reflect on this. You, you said the number of something like 55% of people are, are sort of generally content with the, yeah, the, the current rules and regulations that, that exist um, in, in the UK. Um, but maybe, maybe shine a, a, a little bit of light on your analysis around that as well. And good morning, by the way, Andrew. Good morning, yes. So uh, in a survey this week, 55% of British people said not only they're content with the current restrictions on overseas travel, they do not believe they should be reconsidered until 2022. So uh, there's a feeling here that uh, I think in the papers that we're dodging something that's still playing out in, in Europe because we ticked over this this magic number of over 50% of the entire population now has been vaccine, vaccinated. They've opened up the economy a little bit in the last couple of weeks and there has been no rise in infection. So it, it seems that the, the vaccines are holding and people don't want to go back through the experiences. But the strange thing is there's, there's another group of people who I think after 18 months of this, they just like being locked down. And that's, it's, it's a strange thing. They, they, they don't mind the shops being shut and they, they don't mind the pubs being shut, maybe because that isn't their kind of regular life. They like it a bit quieter. They like the fact that they're at home most of the time. They've got more time for their kids. They, they don't have to go to the office. So when it comes to the world of work again, another survey this week said uh, some 25% of people uh, requested never to ever go back to their office ever again. And in the US, uh, a survey last week said up to a third of people said that they would resign their job if at the end of the pandemic they had to go back to their previous work patterns. So you see that people, they're going to be hard to budge from this. This, And I, you know, and I think it's that's the risk is, you know, we love home. We've all celebrated home. We're just doing a big book about why home is important. But you, you do have to leave it sometimes. And I think that's the bit that's going to be tricky over the coming months. Andrew, maybe just unpack this a little bit more for us, uh, though. And maybe look, let's look at this, this U.S. number for, for a moment. And just, you know, I mean, you, your eye on this. It, it, it's quite remarkable when, when you think about, you know, the culture of a business. It doesn't matter whether you're a big multinational. Uh, you know, you can also be a, a small accountancy firm potentially as well. Uh, but but how, how important is this? And, it, you know, we've been talking, of course, over the last year a little bit about moments of, of, of reckoning. Do you think this is also going to be a bit of a delay in, you know, in the same way we're trying to say, okay, you know, the vaccines we know are kicking in? Is there something else that's also going to kick in as well? This maybe this realization moment. Again, of course, you know, we, we now see, you know, there's a story in, in, the, in the Swiss papers about the, just the number of offices, buildings, you know, all over Switzerland that are being turned into apartments now. Um, so just, you know, maybe your, your spin or, or take on that. Well, I think long term, it's not going to look th that different to what it was before the pandemic. I just think it's going to take longer than people imagine to get back to that position. Because the interesting thing is, if you look at you know, the deals being done by large property organisations in the UK, they're still building office units. If you look at the, the players in the in the co-working space, they're, they're adapting and changing. Yes, they're building a few more places in suburban outposts. Yes, you know, maybe they're going to build something upstate New York as well as in the city. But it, they're still adapting their city core properties as well. So I think all of these people have, have looked at the, the, the way we're going. I think actually it is kind of going to be okay. But I think what will happen is, is 
it's that fear of missing out that is a strange motivator for all sorts of people including including management and and what will happen is you'll suddenly see a really cool company who's got a great office where it's they people like going into the space they they like seeing each other they see their careers progressing that they make a name and a reputation for themselves and there are other people who have stayed out of the the game and then suddenly when they see their friends advancing in their careers that is the thing that will change it so it's going to take a little while but it, it will definitely revert once people see they're not getting promoted they, they they're not kind of being noticed anymore because the zoom calls an hour and once a week instead of daily that's what will change it Andrew, let's uh, just look at the papers um, in the UK. The Sunday Times leading with quite a, yeah, quite an extraordinary story, but maybe not so surprising. The headline, Dominic Cummings to blame Boris Johnson for COVID death toll. Um, so are we expecting a presser from him? Uh, you know, wh- where is this going to come from? And, and is this going to be a particularly tricky week for number 10? Well, he's he's due to give evidence uh, to Parliament. He's calling for a, an inquiry uh, into uh, COVID and its handling. And he's going to say that Boris Johnson uh, said that under no circumstances would there be a second lockdown when it was believed to be needed. And because of that, many thousands of people have lost their lives. Now, He's a he's a street fighter, Cummings. You know, this is the former advisor to the prime minister who who, who left after really deep tensions at Number Ten with uh, Carrie Simons, the, the partner of, of Boris Johnson, who is a a, a, a Tory, you know, a fixture in the Tory party. Anyway, she she's a, a player as well. So she has her own group around her who hated Cummings. They're spinning this all out as you know. This is just sexism from Cummings. Cummings is saying this is you know a prime minister who then say no to his partner. So it's 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 both personal, but it also hints at, at several other stories. Which oddly, I think the most interesting of it and the one that is going to be difficult to dodge for the prime minister is it does seem that he tried to find a way to get Tory donors to give him some cash to do up number 10. Now, it's not huge, it's not millions, but it's tens of thousands of pounds. And it looks very murky. And even the right-wing press are going for him on it. So I think if this this smell of corruption begins to bed in, which it has over the last week, then that's going to be very difficult for the Prime Minister. And Cummings, interestingly, he's been blamed for lots of these leaks from government. The reason he went kind of ballistic this week was he realized that if this latest uh, claim that he had leaked um, text messages between the prime minister and the entrepreneur james dyson the maker of the 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 vacuum of the hoover vacuum cleaner rather if he if he had been blamed for that he would have been subject to a police investigation so once he knew that he was like okay here's a thousand words from me on my blog saying why this prime minister is is actually not not a good person and actually has has done things that have cost people's lives. Andrew, uh, we'll catch up with you a little bit later in the program. I'm also wondering um, if you can maybe speak or or at least get some images uh, to discuss about what that Renault looks like um, as well. I wonder if the the interiors are also uh, as murky uh, as potentially the dealings um, around this. Uh, But we'll be chatting to Andrew Tuck a little bit later. Um, Rob, uh, and uh, this is uh, maybe just a a slight change of tack. At the start of the program, you were talking about, uh, of course, the first 100 days. And I want to come back to that a little bit later when uh, we'll be going to Bangkok to, to talk 
talk uh, to our Gwen, Gwen Robinson, of course, also uh, we'll be certainly talking about Myanmar when we, when we go there. But in the meantime, um, we have the, the Oscars. Before we went on, on air, uh, we were talking about this. I have to ask you, of course, as an American on this side of the Atlantic, you know, do you care? Will you be up at 2 a.m. Uh, tuned in for this? Is, is, it, is it important uh, after a year when we've seen so many things, of course, cancelled and having to be recut and recast? Interesting or not? Well, uh, my own personal opinion is I'd rather sleep than watch the Oscars pretty much any time of the year, uh, any any year uh, that the Oscars are on. Um, I'll be interested to see who wins. But, you know, it was a very strange year. For, I mean, you know, that's sort of an understatement. I mean, how many of us actually went to a theater and saw any of these films? You know, almost nobody. I mean, I tried to sort of, I thought I'd catch up a bit and went sort of streaming. Can I see these? You know, and you're like, all right, I got to pay 20 bucks here, 20 bucks. Eh, well, maybe I'll just watch Fellini's Eight and a Half instead for free on Prime. And and so it, it feels a little bit like uh, like the Oscars took a break. That said, if you look at the, and I'm sure we'll discuss these films, um, you know, the, it is sort of like they are big, woke uh dramas they, they the ones that I did see uh, they weren't uh, they didn't bring joy but they brought a lot of uh, introspection I should say so it, it will be quite a, it'll be quite fascinating to see which of which how the pathos you know are, are, are doled out by the Academy indeed I want to uh, also say good morning bom dia to our Fernando Augusto Pacheco back at London bom dia Tyler how are you I'm, I'm excited actually today for the Oscars <laughs> Okay, well, we'll we'll come back to to outfits and excitement a little bit uh, later, but and I don't want to bring Selene in on this as well. There's been a lot of op-ed pieces, uh, and, and Rob, you touched on this that that you know that, and maybe Fernando, I'm also going to ask you to compare and contrast because also aside from running our Oscars desk, you also run our Eurovision desk for us um, <laughs> a, a, as well. And if I compare a lot of the songs that we're seeing, of course, uh, that that are tipped to do well in Eurovision, I mean, there are some you know some some dark songs, and there's a lot of introspection in place as well. But there's, there's there's no question. I mean, sort of the top three or four songs. You know, these are these are really, you know, even much more sort of dance songs than ever ever been. But then if I look at the Oscars lineup, uh, you know, it's it's a pretty um, serious uh, affair. Um, and it, 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 oddly, you sort of think, is this reflective of our times, or or should studios, yeah, tr- really sort of, you know, they should be trying to sort of bring the sun out uh, and and certainly bring a few smiles. But what's your take, Faye? Well, I, I totally agree, Tyler. The list is very kind of dark and very introspective indeed. Uh, there's no blockbusters. And let's be honest here, the Oscars in the past, you had films like Avatar, Lord of the Rings, Titanic doing very well. And that's what attracted the ratings as well. So they might have a little bit of a problem in attracting uh, the audience. I, I personally liked quite a few of the films like Nomadland, which is just a beautiful, very poetic film with Frances McDormand. But I also understand that it's not a film for everyone. So they don't have kind of a, a populist film this year, which, you know, might bring trouble because, you know, they have to talk to a wider cinema audience. So even though I'm happy that there's been some kind of slightly left field films that were nominated, I do agree with you there's been a little bit of a lack of joy. I'm not sure if this is a coincidence because many of those films, you know, they started their production before, you know, the whole pandemic started. Uh, but yeah, and, and, and Steven Soderbergh is producing the show tonight. He promised that he will film the whole ceremony like it was a film. So I'm quite curious about 
what's going to be actually the, the real format of the event? Um, just, um, Selena, just bring you here on this. Is, is, it, is it maybe a little bit of an identity crisis moment for, for the Oscars? Uh, do, do you think that, that the Oscars are yeah, trying to ape what we would see from a, a, yeah, smaller festivals and maybe sometimes festivals that are you know, much more uh, indus- industry focused? Uh, these are often, you know, I'm thinking about a Sundance. I'm thinking about lots of other yeah, I mean, certainly lots of other platforms that exist out there where you do have this, of course, more artsy milieu of films. And, and there's this absence of, yeah, these, these big numbers where you're going to be seeing that everyone wants to line up. You're, you're, you might be taking your kids or you're going to go on your first date or whatever. It doesn't seem part of this. So what, what do you see at play? No, no, you're, you're totally right. It's a very unique year for the Oscars. I mean, first, Rob said the majority of the film that we that they are uh, selected this year we saw it only on stream uh, stream platform i mean the pandemic really changed all um oscar approach but um no i just want to just highlight two two good points i mean uh, of course this year we don't have blockbusters but the fact that no man land is the favori uh, and it's such an indie film directed also by a young director uh, Chloe Zhao, she's 39 years old. She might be, and she, I mean, she has big chances to be the second woman uh, to win the Oscar for Best Director. And she's not just the darling of the public for obvious reason of being one of the first, um, one of, I mean, the second woman that that might won the Oscar, but just also because, I mean, the all uh, the whole industry loves her. She, they love uh, the, the a lot of directors are. Are talking about her. She's. I mean, I'm very happy about that. That a film like that. You said it. Uh, it's a very poetic film. I'm very happy. And second, just it's going to be a unique show. Uh, they're not going to film it as a TV show. I mean, we're going to be in train. Um, we're going to be in a in a train station at Union Square in the middle of LA. Uh, they're going to try to do something very different. So I'm quite curious about how it's going to be. Um, let's see. No, I'm going to be in it in front of it. <laughs> You're going to watch I, I, it. I'm going to make sure Rob is changing his mind by the end of the <laughs> okay, show. Well, we, we yeah, we but, you know you know that our first morning show uh, starts at uh, 8 a.m. Uh, Swiss time, uh, 7 a.m. in London, so we might be dragging you off off the sofa then. Rob, I guess just uh, maybe uh, very much uh, with your Reuters breaking views hat on, how important is this to the industry, to the studios, do you do you think, in the States? And of course, there's a, you know, it's quite a big analysis uh, in the FT this weekend, trying to, of course, un- unpack this and, and really making a point that for a lot of the big studios, you know, they, they have not been doing so well of late. Uh, Nomadland is, 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 a, is, a, is a Disney film, however. Uh, but, you know, if, if people look at their fortunes and share price come Tuesday. Uh, do you think it matters that much? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting moment for the industry, right? Because all of them are trying to put forward, whether it's Paramount or whether it's Disney, they're streaming businesses are their future. So uh, to some extent, you know, this lockdown hasn't been terrible for them. Disney has really kind of blown away every expectation in terms of subscribers for its Disney Plus uh, business. But, you know, at the end of the day, it gets down people want that Hollywood. They want pizzazz. They want those Titanic films, right? They want that big thing that brings them to not just to the television set, but also to uh, to the, the theaters. And you don't really have that I- at all. I mean, none of these, these are all very thinky pieces 
experiences, and some of them are are downright depressing. Um, so I think I think it's it's going to be an, an interesting moment for for them in terms of trying to pivot back to something that's a little bit more joyful and perhaps the ceremony itself okay maybe i should watch it i'll set my alarm for 2 a.m um but because it may actually be uh an opportunity to kind of rethink cinema um fernando how, how did we land here how, how have we arrived at a position uh that that everything seems you know, somehow um joyless uh now of course there are moments within all of these things but uh, you know is it is it a sign of our times because of the last year uh or is it you know a sign of uh, the, the pc wave uh of political correctness on the u.s west coast what is it do you think well it's been you know we're saying we're talking about this year this particularly you know very kind of difficult list of eight films, but it's been a trend in recent years that kind of more smaller films, uh, kind of the avoidance of blockbusters, and it is affecting the ratings. So the Oscars, remember, they were going to introduce the category for the best popular film or something like that, but there was a big rejection to it, and they decided not to go ahead with it. So again, joyless films, but I wonder if it's going to be a very joyful ceremony. I'm quite confident, Tyler, because most award ceremonies in recent months, they, they did a lot of Zoom. There were a lot of kind of technical problems. I think the Oscars, they are really avoiding kind of that, you know, that Zoom kind of pandemic vibes. And they want, you know, to look uh, beautiful on the screen. And I think that will be almost as important as the quality of films uh, that were nominated in a way. And, and I mean, we're talking about joyless, but look at Minari. Minari is such a wonderful uh, film. Also, like Nomadland, very poetic about the South Korean family moving to Arkansas. I, I very much uh, enjoyed Minari. Perhaps that's actually one of my favorites as well. And you mentioned Eurovision. We have Husevik uh, from the soundtrack from Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. Could win Best Original Song. Who knows? Fernando, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just uh, I want to just go to Selene for one second. Uh, maybe we should also, uh, of course, because you're here, France uh, in 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 all of this. Uh, so just again, uh, as we're warming up to go on air, uh, so then you said uh, you're also uh, looking uh, at something, of course, that could do well, maybe from uh, from your countrymen as well. Yes, yes, of course. I love No Man Land, but I'm going to support uh, The Father, directed by Florence Zeller, French director, uh, starring uh, Anthony Hopkins. That has also big chances to win uh, Best Actress. Very, very good performance. So uh, I know they're going to do... Um, they're gonna, they, Florian is going to be in Paris and they're going to do direct retransmission with him. No Zoom, just satellite retransmission. So he's my, um, I'm supporting him tonight for mm. sure. Um, and uh, you just touched on, on, on Eurovision. We're, uh, well, we're under a month away um, from, uh, of course, Eurovision. Uh, and uh, maybe just here very, very quickly, because uh, I know you're, you know, obviously you're touching on other programs on this topic, but maybe just a little bit of, a, of an update. Uh, your, your top three, not to put you on the spot, because we're supposed to be talking about film. Um, but uh, who, who are you tipping to to win? Because obviously we're, we'll move into a period, of course, uh, we will have, of course, the Eurovision finals. And then, and then, of course, there's the big night on the 22nd of May. At the moment, Tyler, I'm sticking with Malta. I think it's a very, a beat. I think you've heard, right? The song is about, all about not, not removing your clothes, but, you know, dancing. I think, you know, even though there are a lot of ballads that are favorites, I think on the day, People will want something a little bit more club friendly. Uh, at least that's what I'm hoping. Uh, and I'm going to Lithuania. I have to agree with you. I think the Baltics did very well this year. And the song called is Discotheque, for God's sake. I mean, what do we need more, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and perhaps Iceland. Let's go for Iceland, Malta and Lithuania.
And but, but but I do have to ask Israel uh, as well. The, I mean, the the Israeli entry is 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 also quite outstanding. Uh, so yeah, I wonder whether we could see a situation also uh, that your Eurovision does head back to Tel Aviv too. Well, that'll be a pleasure because I was there in 2019. They hosted very well the event. Uh, it was quite an interesting one, even though I know Madonna didn't do a good performance, which was a shame because uh, I was expecting quite a lot when I was there in the in the, in the arena. Yeah, Madonna. Where, where is she going? Fernando Gusto Pacheco uh, back uh, in London. Very good to chat to you. Uh, heading, staying in London, Emma Nelson's there with the news. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Turkey has reacted angrily to a decision by the Biden administration to recognize the massacre of Armenians during the First World War as genocide. It's a break with decades of U.S. policy. Southeast Asian leaders have told Myanmar's military ruler that his army must stop killing protesters and speak to the opposition. And a group of French volunteers has emerged from a cave after a 40-day study to explore how long a human being takes to adapt to isolation. The 15 people slept in tents in the Lombrief Cave in southwest France with no phones, clocks or sunlight and no contact with the outside world. Back to you in Zurich, Tyler. Emma, appealing, more appealing than being the shepherdess uh, up uh, up a, a valley in, I, somewhere in Switzerland? I think members of my household have already uh, commented that um, that if you wanted to be uh, enclosed for a long period of time with a cow, then you need, to just go, you need to just go around to the Nelson household for the last couple of hours. It's not been fun in London. We may as well, we may as well have been in a cave in France, for, for, to be honest. But we're back out again, so all is well. Very good. Emma, uh, we'll catch up with you uh, towards the end of the program. It's uh, just uh, 10.31 here in Zurich. 10.31 uh, also up in Berlin, where we're heading now. Uh, Christoph Amund is their editorial director, of course, as you will know, listeners of Zeit magazine. Guten Morgen, Berlin. Good morning, sir. I know I, I have caught you in Berlin because I, I didn't even read the notes. You could be on Zilt. I don't know. You could be in Rostock for all I know, but I'm assuming it's Berlin. Yes, it's a sunny morning here in Berlin. Uh, lockdown, another lockdown has just started last night. So um, no more walking, you know, around in the evenings. Uh, so it's going to be very difficult. So people will be out in the streets today, I think, enjoying the sunshine. So let's uh, do a little uh, mood and, and, and temperature uh, check, because as we were uh, saying at the start of the program, you have a lot of Southern Europe uh, opening. We've had this long, I mean, this is such a prolonged process uh, around this this new emergency break that you're, you're referring to, the, these, these new levels of, of lockdown, Christoph. I mean, that almost yeah. took three weeks um, to have this discussion. Um, and, and finally, of course, uh, it has emerged. It, it, it is It is sticking now. But what is what, what what is the sense there? Because of course you know you know even here in Switzerland, yeah we had we saw you know, quite a sizable protest um, down the lake yesterday, three thousand people. The Swiss police didn't do very much about it either. It was almost almost too big a crowd. They didn't want things to kick off. But give us a, at least the temperature check uh, in and around Berlin Brandenburg. How are people feeling? Well, I think the mood is kind of mixed because, I mean, the, the, the vaccination numbers are going up. So people are really heading towards the, their, their doctors, the, the private doctors, uh, you know, finally trying to get some uh, Moderna or BioNTech um, to, you know, uh, vaccines. And I think that's, that's the one direction where people are moving at the moment. Um, on the other hand, uh, you, you have a very sort of moody situation with people not being very happy about the situation because because of you know going into lockdown again most of the people agree with it in a way that they think it's it's necessary but on the other hand um you know people are sort of unhappy about some people are unhappy about the 
so-called Notbremse uh, that we were referring to. And I think there's going to be a, 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 a law discussion about it, uh, whether it's really legal. Let's um, maybe we'll focus on legalities, but also um, also leadership as well. We, we started uh, the week uh, with, of course, a, a new leader appointed to the Greens. Um, and it was, you know, I'm not sure if it was much of a race. But any, anyway, we now have uh, Annalena Baerbock um, taking up this position. Yeah, maybe your own take uh, whether whether the paper has has a view uh, on her on her because it's you know it's she's she's not of course a name on the international stage it's not it's she's certainly not someone um, that uh, because you know in, in a way you would say that her yeah her her colleague Mr. Havik has you know almost you know did a better charm offensive in the international press uh, than she has mm. done but um, yeah is there is there a house view uh, on on this new leader? Well, the interesting thing is that. She- she, I think that I think, I think in, time, in politics, timing is very important. So I think two years ago, Robert Habeck, who's the other leader uh, um, of the Green Party, would have surely been appointed as the candidate. Uh, at the time, Annalena Baerbock was sort of an unknown, late 30s, younger politician. But uh, since, since then, she's really moved up um, a lot. She, her popularity in the polls uh, has gone up and... And of course, she's a woman and she's, you know, she's, she really has a serious chance to become the first uh, chancellor for the Green Party in Germany um, at the moment. And numbers are going up. Green Party has just announced that um, there's a lot of people, uh, you know, becoming members uh, last week of the party since she was appointed. And uh, the reason why she really has a chance to become the next chancellor of Germany is because of the weakness of the other candidate. So the, the, the conservative parties, the two of them, CDU and CSU, um, have nominated Armin Laschet, um, whose poll numbers are really bad. And um, so there's, a, 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 I think, really sort of a serious chance for her to become the next chancellor. And uh, if I'm part of um, uh, the, the DAX, the DAX top 20, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm maybe looking at a, a potential uh, yeah, green leadership um, in, in, in the chancellor, how, how am I feeling if I'm, if I'm part of uh, Deutschland Incorporated? Yeah, well, that's going to be very interesting, how people are going to vote in the end, because I don't think that the, 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 the DAX leaders would be afraid of a, a green conservative government, sort of a coalition between the city would and the Green Party, I think that that wouldn't worry them because they've seen, for example, in a, a state like Baden-Württemberg, where they have a green uh, leader, um, that they can be really economically friendly. Um, but I think there is a fear of uh, a, a left a green uh, coalition um, sort of the Green Party, the Social Democrats, and the the left party, uh, the former uh, East German party. So I think there could be a, a movement towards uh, either the CDU in the end or the Liberal Democrats just to avoid uh, sort of a left-wing Green government. Christopher, let's bring uh, things uh, just go back to your desk a little bit, uh, maybe just uh, more into focus. I'm very happy to say that... Uh, Zeit Magazine's uh, men's edition, uh, your men's uh, spring fashion special, is flying off the newsstand here at Duvorstrasse. Uh, oh, that's do we would, Yes, which is always good. Uh, maybe uh, tell us a little bit about that. Also, you've had, uh, of course, your, your travel special uh, out for spring as well. 
Well, our new uh, issue of Zeit Magazine Mann has just been published, uh, as you said, uh, and it uh, features uh, the German actor Benno Fuhrmann on the cover, uh, who, of course, has been becoming, uh, has, has sort of been some international fame in the last couple of years because he stars in Babylon Berlin, uh, the, uh, the German uh, TV show. Um, and um, he talks about, for the very first time, actually, I had a, I had a couple of meetings with him and he talks about the drama of his earlier life because he lost his two parents, his, his parents, uh, within a few years uh, when he was a, a kid, a teenager, and um, how that sort of, you know, uh, made him think about life and made him uh, make his way the way he did it was quite an, uh, quite a, a moving uh, conversation that I, I had with him for Zeit Magazine Mann. And yes, I mean, this week uh, in Zeit Magazine, we have our travel issue, our annual travel issue, which we uh, dedicate to one photographer every year. So um, our photography department uh, works with uh, a selected you know, photographer for a couple of months uh, on this issue. And this year, we have uh, a fantastic photographer from New York, Sam Yukidis. He's 27 years old. At the moment, I think he hangs around in Mexico and he's been traveling around the world for many years and shows us uh, what he's seen uh, traveling the globe. And absolutely, as as ever, it's um, I mean, for all of our listeners, and if you can get your, your hands uh, on a copy of, of Die Zeit, no matter what corner of the world you're in, um, it's, 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 a real, it's a real feast. So congratulations um, on that issue. Christian, we're looking forward to seeing you in Zurich. You know, sun is out, terraces are open, um, and uh, we would love to have you come down to Seyfeld, so hopefully you can swing it. Uh, I'm looking forward so much to come over to you and uh, have a, a dop you on the terrace. And more. Uh, Christopher, I'm the editorial director uh, of Zeit Magazine, joining us uh, from Berlin this morning. It's just uh, coming up to 10.40 here in Zurich. We're going away for a short break. We're back right after this. Have you heard the late edition on Monocle 24? Now more than ever, the time is right for a global conversation that cuts through the white noise and brings clarity, genuine insight and just the right tone to news and analysis. These were ways of getting on the same level as other people, stripping away some of the artifice of your office. So whether it's beer and chips or getting butt naked, you do need some of these moments that shake up the narrative. If you're tired of strident anchors and the wearying pace of the news ticker, then join more editors every weekday for the late edition a lively friendly and forward-looking kick around of the day's main stories i think if it gets people to engage with their beetroots in a different way nothing remiss then it's probably a good thing isn't it hosted each evening by our editors from zurich london toronto and new york city the late edition weekdays at 1600 eastern time on monocle 24 You are with Monocle Sunday uh, here on Monocle 24 with me, Tyler Relay. Rob Cox, also Selene is here. Uh, Rob, just at the t- top of the program, you're talking about uh, the first 100 days 
uh, of the Biden uh, administration. Of course, yeah, may, maybe not uh, as as turbulent, of course, as the first hundred days when we think back to the Trump administration. But you know, you highlighted um, you know, a number of things uh, that that have you know that have obviously happened. I mean, it's just you know, on one side, of course, we we've had you know, I can't think for how many administrations have been called upon by the Armenian community, uh, of course, uh, by by elements of the international community to to really talk about a proper condemnation around the Ar- Armenian genocide. And now we, we've seen the, this administration, you know, come out really you know, pointing a finger at Erdogan. Uh, and, and, and I mean, and a number of things in that neighborhood. We're going to head to to Bangkok in a second as well. And maybe we can talk a little bit about um, also um, Asia and Southeast Asia. But just you know, quickly, your, your reflection on yeah, what you I see mean- now. It's a a pretty consequential 100 days. And I think that's the way to think of it without the Sturm und Drang that, you know, or the drama that characterized the first 100 days of Trump. I mean, you know, trying to settle this 100 plus year old uh, question of of Armenian genocide. uh, Fascinating that they've chosen that. But remember, Erdogan was sort of buddy buddy with Trump. Uh, I think about the the Saudis, okay, have been frozen out. MBS has been frozen out of the picture. Um, When you think of this week where there was the big green summit that Biden put together with with John Kerry, his emissary on on climate change, it was pretty formidable, as you would say. I mean, it was it was pretty amazing to see that you you did not see MBS there. You did not. They were they were conspicuously absent. The greatest, you know, if you will, uh, petro uh, countries on the planet. You know, when it comes to domestic policy, of course, you know, taxing, uh, changing the view of taxation. You know, doubling capital gains taxes to put them on a par with labor. I mean, it's a it's a question of fairness. He wants to do that also to pay for huge infrastructure spendings. I mean, this is this is a pretty and and I have to say, having been a bit skeptical that an old guy like Joe Biden who'd been around forever, who's seventy eight years old, was going to be that consequential, would be that extra, you know, do that much. Um, I have to eat my words on this, and perhaps I was a bit ageist. Um, someone with experience, someone with that. Gravitas has been able to pull this off. Whether any of it sticks, and mm. in four years, when we have uh, another election, this all comes back to bite uh, the Democrats. I don't know, but but it is it is it is pretty notable to to have seen this all happening in the last in the first 100 days. Absolutely. Uh, on that, we are uh, going to across to Bangkok right now. Our Gwen Robinson uh, is there. So, what up, Gwen? Uh, well, first, uh, very, very good to, to hear you. But um, maybe why don't we uh, we turn our attention uh, to, to to Myanmar uh, at, at the moment? You know, this question, which is is just is, is swirling around, we hear really about more more atrocities uh, every day. We talk, you know, we hear about, yeah, I mean, issues of torture and and and, and all kinds of things. And then, as, as Rob was saying, you know, going into this, here, you know, here we have a U.S. administration, you know, which is is really setting out its stall, Gwen, in terms of its role. Of course, you know, we, we had uh, Prime Minister Suga's always uh, has already been over, uh, or I should say Japan's Prime Minister Suga's already been over uh, to, to Washington. Um, and, and I'm wondering, but from your perch in, in Bangkok, uh, is there enough focus from the international community on on Myanmar at the moment? Because all you hear is like, well, probably Japan's not going to do anything. Uh, you know, uh, is, is Thailand going to do anything? People, there's so many vested interests around that country uh, from an investment point of view. Uh, but what's your, what's your take? Well, indeed, in fact, that is the, the Myanmar seems to be the story that kind of wraps together an, an amazing variety of regional issues here, uh, particularly in the last two days, because um, finally, the leaders of ASEAN, the 10-member 
grouping of Southeast Asian countries got together on Saturday in Jakarta for an emergency meeting about precisely that topic, what to do about Myanmar and the terrible escalating violence, because clearly what Myanmar has become is a concern for all the countries of the region. They can't follow their previous kind of blind eye policies of not interfering in each other's internal affairs. Now Thailand is looking at an explosion of refugees possibly coming in from Myanmar. So is even India on the other side. And generally, I think Southeast Asian countries feel deep unease about having this appalling situation in the middle and Myanmar being a stalwart member of ASEAN. So they really did need to do something about it. But as you so rightly pointed out, um, it's a it's a big issue for the U.S. Uh, with the Biden administration trying to, you know, tout itself as a as a defender of um, democracy and human rights, and also, frankly, the Chinese, which are great patrons of Myanmar. But frankly, I think the ASEAN meeting was a very useful way to deflect the onus from the big powers, and they have lent very heavily on ASEAN to come up with a solution. <laughs> but I don't think there's a solution in sight, although. They have claimed a breakthrough on the weekend. Yeah, there's some sort of five-point plan, but I mean, a five-point plan mm. needs, needs, needs implementation. Well, indeed, and let's say one of the five points was cessation of violence or killing, and uh, judging by the last 24 hours, there's not been much cessation, um, and I think we'll, we'll pretty well know in the next few days whether, whether that was just a... a a cynical uh, effort by the junta leader, this little general Min online, to just, you know, gain credibility by appearing at ASEAN. He loved that, and state media made a big thing about his trip. Gwen, just um, of course, the top of the program as you do on so many shows right now. We're, we're you know we're we're trying to of course spin the globe and see who's opening and how it's being dealt mm. with. It, you know, Thailand has well up until now has been doing a pretty has been doing a pretty good job on keeping a, a lid mm. on things. Now whether or not we believe all of the, the numbers, the low infection rates, but okay, we we can we can agree they've done a good job. But there's been a real serious wobble over the last week. I mean, suddenly we've been seeing you know these these large field hospitals. We've been seeing convention centers, etc. Of course. You know, going back into to th- these these images that we were seeing almost a year ago, um, when mm. of course you had the same situation in the states or or in the UK or elsewhere. Um, what has this sort of done for the national mood? Because you know you were touching on there was this you know, slight move. Okay, are we going to be able to get tourism restarted in a country where, yeah, of course, yeah. tourism is so important to the economy? Uh, what's what's happening now? Yeah, well, that's, um, I mean, that is the story, I suppose, apart from the, the nerves about what's happening on the borders. But really, inside Thailand, I think there is a slow motion freakout going on because last year, as I think most people know, Thailand was a COVID star praised widely for its swift action. And I think it kept infections to under 4,000 and very few deaths. So, I mean, they stayed under 50 for a long time and then climbed a little bit. Uh, now, in the last, uh, well, just since April 1, it's basically exploded. Um, and now we've got about 53,000 cases. And every day it's close to 3,000 uh, new cases, a little bit less today. But I think most experts fear it's, um, it's really taken hold and is going up. Uh, deaths are at 130, so still very, relatively low number of deaths as opposed to the infections. But as you say, coming just as Thailand is trying to reopen its tourism industry and had all these grand plans, including 
one that was set to launch on July the 1st to let tourists fly straight into Phuket, do their quarantine there, all kinds of plans. I think this COVID wave is really um, rapidly undoing it. Um, so far, the Thais have insisted that some of these plans are on track, but I don't really see how they're going to manage that because partly the, the very slow rollout of vaccines, which has been a debacle, don't get me started, that's very complicated, but assure you they're way behind on that. Um, so I think this is a terrible thing for the economy and clearly the Prime Minister this time does not want to lock down, but the pressure is mounting to even lock the whole country down. And just maybe focusing on on the on the PM and maybe some of his cabinet ministers, I, I gather there was maybe some late nights out uh, in in Tonglor um, to some interesting bars that have uh, caused a little bit of embarrassment. Uh, funny, you should mention that. Uh, indeed, um, this whole recent wave, I think, probably uh, slightly magnified. It's all pinned on the revelations that some. Very important Thai people, uh, including possibly uh, there's a couple of cabinet ministers who tested positive, but the lid was lifted on some what what was happily named in in some of the press as Tonglor Kitty Bars, uh, which are some extraordinary uh, vast nightclubs that, uh, as you can imagine, um, lots of uh, slap and tickle and fun going on down there. And apparently, one of them was named um, nicknamed Government House. You can guess why. Uh, so, actually, apparently, they have traced some of the super spreaders to uh, a particularly wild night at uh, at that uh, club and a couple of others in that area. And uh, subsequently, there are other outbreaks. Uh, we don't know if that all came from a few clubs, but you know how it's gone in Europe as well. So the and the ties are quite vigilant on on trying to track and trace, but. Uh, I'm I'm sure there is some economy with the truth here on what really happened in Tonglo, but uh, I think a lot of people are blaming uh, this latest wave on that particular area. Gwen, Gwen Robinson, um, always the latest uh, with stories from Tonglor Titty Bars. Uh, very, very good uh, to, to talk to you. Uh, you are listening uh, to, to Monocle on Sunday with me, uh, Tyler Brule. We're just approaching uh, almost uh, the, the end of the program. Uh, Rob, just reflecting though, just quickly on what Gwen was saying, um, you know, we, we've had this, of course, you know, and, and you, well, you, we're focusing a little bit on, on the Middle East um, and, and certainly the Eastern Mediterranean when we look at the Biden administration. Do you see there's a pretty, we're starting to see a very joined up foreign policy coming together. They're kind of working their way around uh, the globe at the moment. Of course, we have a demobilization, of course, coming out of Afghanistan uh, as as well. So are they following the moon, following the sun in terms of what else we're going to see from other corners of the world? I mean, we haven't seen some big statements you know, around Africa yet. There's obviously, you know, we, we, they haven't really hit anything on Latin America in a, in a, in a major way. Yeah, I think, I mean, you're, you're starting to see a restoration, if you will, to sort of something like the the, the 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 way that the United States always behaved with transatlantic and uh, uh, allies both under Obama and under Bush obviously okay pulling back from Afghanistan is a whole is a whole is something that people have been talking about for quite some time but you know I think I think the next step will be interesting to watch actually what the US does a bit what you is talking about with vaccines what does the US do with these excess vaccines that it has, this surplus. And I think that will be, there is this question about, you know, vaccine diplomacy, um, but it is a measure of soft power. And it, and it wouldn't surprise me to see the Biden administration 
pretty soon decide what to do, whether vis-a-vis Africa or Latin America, where you uh, you have some real questions, or India for that mm. matter, even though India is, of course, the largest producer of vaccines. Um, I think that will be that'll be quite an interesting measure. The, the, the Biden administration now has a 52 percent approval rating, according to some recent polls. That's pretty high if you consider it. Uh, Trump, I don't think, ever got anywhere in the 50s, or even, even mid-40s. Um, so he wants to make sure that people at home are vaccinated. You know, you're getting the point now where the millions per day is coming down. It's come down by a million per day. And you sort of have holdouts, people who don't want to get vaccinated, that kind of thing. But I think you're getting to the point now where you will start to see the Biden administration do do the sort of do good on that front. And I think that could be that could be a, a, a further turning point for American policy. Absolutely. Um, Andrew Tucker is uh, back uh, on the other side of the channel. Uh, Andrew, we, uh, you had already left uh, the conversation, but we sort of t- we touched on, on the Oscars. We were talking to our Fernando Augusto Pacheco as well. Uh, I wanted your, your take. Uh, will you be um, you know, getting the pajamas out, getting the popcorn out? Uh, w- will, we, uh, will we see Andrew Tucker wake at uh, 1 a.m. London time uh, to, to be tuning in? Well, there's certainly a few films I've seen that I, I hope are rewarded. I've talked here before about Minari, which is one of my favourites. It seems to be nominated in uh, in every category. I think everybody's watching also because you know it's such a weird point in our history that with the Olymp with the Olympics with with the Oscars with all these events, you know, th- their symbolism becomes very overplayed. So everyone's wondering whether this will be a kind of a bit of a, 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 a more of a rally for social causes than uh, the rewarding just of talent and how those two worlds collide. So it'll be interesting to see is this is this really just a kind of a, a representation of the, a, a very political year or is this going to be a, a, a chance to be a bit more kind of uh, clever in, in how the awards are given? And you had a, an opportunity, I guess, it was at the end of last week or the or the start of this week, to to also have an interesting conversation with the with the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. Of course, there's all of these. You know, every day we seem to wake up, you know, to another story. Is it happening? Is it not happening? I was I was talking to some people in Lausanne this week. It's like they're getting on a plane next week, and so I, I wonder if you have a take on this as well. You know, we seem, seemingly when you're speaking to the IOC, there's there's no question these these games are going ahead unless something you know very very dramatic happens. Well, I interviewed Gavin McAlpine, who's one of the key people involved in the, the delivery of the games, and, 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 and you know, a very sober man who's very aware of all the complications and makes it clear this is not going to be a, a regular games. All sorts of protocols are going to have to be put into place. But he's confident that they can do it, and they can do it despite all, all the setbacks even out. Oddly, in, in, in this pandemic, a couple of months is quite a long time to sort things out and he believes that it, it will go ahead and it will go ahead with obviously just domestic uh, spectators in the stadia but that it will be a success as well and I, it was it was it was you know it was interesting talking to him because he, as i said he's he's not kind of oh don't worry there's nothing to worry about he's like there's lots of concerns that there are going to be problems between here and then but if we do this then it, it's important for japan inc it's important for the globe to see that you can come back together and could be a really important moment so i was i was i was pretty confident after speaking to all the officials i've spoken to at the isc in the last week that it will happen mm. uh, just uh, b- before we go Solen, um, i'm going to put you on the spot um just if can you tip us who's going to who's going to win uh, who, if mm-hmm. you i know you can sort of you know of course uh 
Yes, uh, you can maybe uh, want to vote uh, vote for your, your French friends, uh, but are, are we Nomadland territory? W- what do you think is going to win? Yeah, Nomadland should be the, the big winner tonight, especially with Chloe Zhao as a director. Um, I will say also Chad- Chadwick Boseman uh, will won as a total tribute. You know, he passed away last year. Um, I'm, I'm not sure about the best actress. I have a doubt between Carrie Mulligan and Frances McDormand. So let's see. Mm. Yeah. Just, uh, Andrew, we have a transport special coming up, and I want to bring Emma Nelson uh, in just before we go very quickly. I sent you both a photograph. It was absolutely electric and alive yesterday, and I, I want there to be a bit of a competition because it, we had all of these people gathered on our terrace yesterday, and this Cinquecento pulls up in olive green. <laughs> it has fringe. It had wicker seats. And just the whole street stopped, and so I sent it to Andrew right away. So, I mean, Andrew, do you think this kind of vehicle would work for you? It's got little, it doesn't even have doors. It's just got, like, wonderful sort of, you know, raffia sort of ropes, etc. Can you see yourself, you know, maybe whizzing around Bloomsbury or, or, or potentially maybe somewhere sunnier in that vehicle? Uh, it, it may <laughs> not work quite so well in Bloomsbury. Somewhere sunnier, I think, would be very, very good. I, I like anything with a fringe on top. Who couldn't love a car with a fringe on top? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I was th- also that even almost at all four corners, there, there are some small tassels, and it was, it was absolutely extraordinary. Emma, the commute uh, from, uh, of course, from uh, Nelson Towers to, to Midori House, <laughs> would, would it work? It's normally only six minutes, but frankly, Andrew, I think we need a, an off-air discussion about hiring a garage and whether we can go uh, do a sort of a timeshare on this, uh, on this wonderful car. Uh, frankly, I'll drive it around London. I really don't mind if it rains on it. Oh no, it can't rain on it because it will get it wet. No, you, no, no, no one wants a soggy fringe. <laughs> but we'll, we're, take... we're going we're gonna to have to leave, leave, leave it there. Emma Nelson, you're going to be back with uh, the news headlines uh, in about a minute and a half. Big thanks today to, to Rob Cox, uh, also Céline Leger, Christophe Amend up in Berlin, uh, also Fernando Augusto Pacheco uh, and Gwen Robinson in Bangkok. The program was produced by Emma Nelson and Rhys James today. Our studio manager in Zurich has been Desiree Benley. Nora Hall has been looking after us in London. I'm Tyler Blay. Monocle on Sunday is back at the very same time next week. Goodbye.